This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash missionlog. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash missionlog, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 437, Caretaker. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take an in-depth voyage into each and every episode, series, and film in the Star Trek franchise to see how far we can go in the Star Trek universe, and to look for the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein, and to see if they stand the test of time. This week, we begin our journey into Star Trek Voyager with the series premiere, Caretaker, the one where we encounter an incredibly powerful force of nature who is determined to protect the people under her care. Oh, and also an alien who is trying to do the exact same thing. We will get back to Caretaker in a moment, but first, here is how you can stay in touch with us, 70,000 light years notwithstanding. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments can be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, let's get back to the journey with John Champion with this week's trivia. Oh, man, there, there's so much to say, but I did honestly try to narrow it down quite a bit because there's more trivia to come over seven seasons. But today's episode, Caretaker, we have a story by Rick Berman, Michael Piller, and Jerry Taylor returned with us now to the summer of 1993. The Star Trek Brain Trust at the time had successfully launched another new Trek series with Deep Space Nine, and TNG was almost ready to wrap its run and move to the big screen. Time was right to develop the next Star Trek, so Berman, Piller, and Taylor set about doing exactly that over a period of long lunches over several weeks. They knew the show would return to a starship somewhere out there and ramp up the action in the pilot. Those long discussion sessions were narrowed down into a teleplay by Michael Piller and Jerry Taylor, which was mostly ready by May of 1994. Other Star Trek writers like Brandon Braga, Ron Moore, and Renee Echeverria were keenly interested and supposedly even stole a script from Taylor's office just to get a sneak peek. Brannon had been on vacation and was out of the loop on the development, but ultimately his notes did make it into the script and in the series' development overall. 
This episode was directed by Wienrich Kolbe. There's a familiar name for Mission Log listeners. Rich uh, got his professional directing career off the ground after serving in the Army, and his name appears on well-known shows of the 70s and 80s like The Hardy Boys and Battlestar Galactica. He started directing for TNG way back in Season 2 with Where Silence Has Lease and even directed the series finale, All Good Things. On DS9, he directed 13 episodes, but it's here on Voyager where he'll make his biggest contribution with a total of 18 episodes spread out over all seven seasons. Now, Voyager has the distinction of being the first broadcast of the new UPN network on January 16th, 1995, seen as an extended single episode as we are covering it here. Later in syndication, they broke it up into two parts. It was seen by 21.3 million people. And this overlaps with Deep Space Nine's third season. On January 2nd and 9th, they aired parts one and two of Past Tense, then took a break while Voyager launched, then came back on the 30th with Life Support. And, well, this is almost exactly two years after the DS9 pilot had aired. Uh, The TNG finale had, of course, aired in May of 1994. This episode had a 28-day production cycle, uh, extraordinary for a TV show, but the same number of days scheduled for DS9's pilot, uh, where you're shooting a lot of establishing material. Uh, By comparison, Voyager had a $23 million budget, uh, which is right in line. DS9 had a $22 million budget. The caretaker concept itself was a trapdoor. Uh, We never get any more details about his partner, so it was conceived that they could switch gears and give the Voyager crew an out if the premise wasn't working for audiences. And the episode was nominated for four Emmy Awards, picking up one for visual effects. Now let's meet the crew. Uh, In the Mission Log tradition, we'll just look at one of our main cast each week for the next several weeks. Let's talk about Kate Mulgrew as Catherine Janeway. Now, original contenders for the role, and there were many, included Susan Gibney, who we know as Dr. Leah Brahms from TNG, and Geneviève Boujold. Boujold has an extensive career as a feature film actor, probably best known at the time for playing Anne Boleyn in Anne of the Thousand Days in 1969. Later roles were in Earthquake, Coma, Dead Ringers, Tightrope, and many more. So much has been covered in books, articles, and interviews about her short time on Voyager, but suffice to say that she was not a good fit for the rigors and breakneck pace of TV production. She left the show after filming for one and a half days, and that set production, which was already behind by a week, into a further delay to find a new lead. The producers went back to some of those original audition tapes, and among the people invited back was Kate, who herself admits that she botched her very first taping by showing very little interest in the role. This time, she got to do a more extensive audition, two scenes, including the captain's monologue about getting the crew home, and in a few days, Rick Berman was calling her to offer the role. Kate is from Iowa and moved to New York uh, to go to NYU and also studied at the Stella Adler Conservatory. A breakout role in Ryan's Hope Soap Opera soon followed and put her on the map. 
starring and recurring TV roles followed, like the titular Mrs. Columbo and as Dr. Springsteen on Heartbeat. The role of Captain Janeway, itself a breakout as the first woman captain in Star Trek history, would earn Kate multiple Saturn Award nominations and one win, and propel her later to additional career highs, such as her Emmy-nominated role in Orange is the New Black. All right, we have some guest stars to touch upon. Well, we do get to welcome back Armin Shimmerman as Quark and Mark Allen Shepard as Morn. Golovec, played by Richard Poe on both TNG and DS9, makes an appearance here. Our first Kazon, Jabin, is played by Gavin O'Herlihy. His father was well-known actor Dan O'Herlihy, and prior to Trek, Gavin was known for playing Richie's older brother, Chuck, on Happy Days, though we didn't see him uh, ever again after the first season he has some very memorable feature film roles he was in connery's last mond outing never say never again he was in superman 3 and he appears in ron howard's willow so at least that short time with the cunninghams paid off this is gavin's only trek appearance he passed away in september of 2021 lieutenant stadi is played by alicia coppola no, no relation to Francis Ford, but Alicia has a very impressive resume from soap operas to TV guest roles on NYPD Blue and recurring gigs on Shameless and NCIS Los Angeles. This is her only Trek appearance. Bruce French should look familiar to you if you've been watching Star Trek and you're listening to this show, so that's a given. He's the Ocampa doctor here, but he was in the TNG episode The Drumhead, as well as the movie Star Trek Insurrection. We will see him one more time in Enterprise. Oh, there's another doctor, too, one without a name on the USS Voyager. He's played by Jeff McCarthy, who you should recognize from the TNG episode The Hunted, in which he guest starred as Roga Denar. Um, do not get used to him, or Lieutenant Stadi in this episode. Finally... Let's meet the caretaker himself, the old man with a banjo. That's played by veteran English actor Basil Langton. He got his start in film back in 1935, and while he worked consistently in front of the camera, like a lot of actors of his generation, he also had a background on the live stage. During World War II, he formed a repertory company that performed in areas that had been hit by enemy bombs, as well as for troops at their bases. After the war, he moved to the U.S. permanently, and you may have caught him in guest spots on Dark Shadows, Murphy Brown, and Wings, as well as a host of feature film roles. This episode of Voyager was among Basil's last performances. He passed away in 2003 at the age of 91. <laughs> Time to set off with a whole new crew. 20 Credits says they're going to find themselves in trouble before the paint's dried on the bridge railings. Prologue. The Cardassian cruiser Vatar is in hot pursuit of a Maquis Raider, which is dwarfed by the size and firepower of the much larger starship. In command of the Raider is Chakotay, accompanied by a crew of fellow Maquis, including Balana Torres, a half-Klingon engineer, and Tuvok, a Vulcan seated at Tactical. With no chance in a direct confrontation with the Vatar, Chakotay orders all power to the engines and makes for the nearby Badlands, where he can hide and maneuver amidst the plasma storms. Pursuing the Maquis Raider, the Vatar is severely damaged by several plasma cyclones and breaks pursuit. But before Chakotay and his crew can reach a nearby planet for repairs, 
They are scanned by a coherent tetrion beam and are immediately swept away by a wave of unknown energy. Act 1. Prisoner Tom Paris is minding his business and toiling away on an Earth-based Federation penal colony in New Zealand until he is interrupted by Captain Catherine Janeway, who has Tom released into her custody. She gets his attention by introducing herself as his father's former science officer aboard the USS Albatani, after which Captain Janeway offers Tom a deal. She needs an ace pilot to fly a starship through the Badlands to find a missing Maquis raider. Tom is reluctant because he is in prison for being Maquis and doesn't think his former colleagues would appreciate his help. Janeway reveals that her trusted security officer is aboard the missing raider, along with Chakotay, a former Starfleet officer turned Maquis who has a complicated history with Paris. Tom will pilot the ship strictly as an observer, and in return, he will have Janeway's support at his next disciplinary hearing. After striking their bargain, Tom is shuttled to Deep Space Nine, where the USS Voyager is berthed. After a brief flyby at his shuttle pilot, Lieutenant Stoddy, Tom's breath is taken away by the sight of Voyager, an intrepid-class starship capable of warp 9.975 and is equipped with state-of-the-art bioneural circuitry. Meanwhile, at Quark's, a very young ensign named Harry Kim is in way over his head, as Quark himself tries to shame Harry into spending his hard-earned Federation credits on a box of supposedly the rarest of gemstones, until Tom Paris spoils the deal and saves Harry from Quark's Ferengi clutches. Later, reporting for duty on Voyager... Paris and Kim enter sickbay where they are met with a less than cordial chief medical officer who has a grudge against Tom, a recurring theme that Harry will soon observe. The doctor logs them in and strongly suggests they leave post-haste to check in with Captain Janeway. She is currently in her ready room, finalizing plans with her fiancé Mark, as her dog is due to have puppies while she is away on assignment. Upon finishing her call, Tom and Harry officially report in, and Kim is told by Janeway to relax before he sprains something. She suggests that Harry should simply address her as Captain instead of Sir or Ma'am, then takes the two through her ready room and onto the bridge where her command staff is ready for launch. As Harry settles into his station, Lieutenant Stoddy is ordered to set course. Lights illuminate the starship's registration number as Voyager leaves Deep Space Nine for the Badlands. Act 2 Tom enters the mess hall and tries to finesse the replicator for some plain, hot tomato soup. He spots Harry in conversation with the CMO and the XO, who clearly have made their distaste for Tom known by leaving the table as he approaches. Tom explains to Harry that his crimes are in fact true, that he caused the accident and tried to cover up the incident, but ended up turning himself into face Starfleet justice in the form of a full discharge. After Starfleet, Tom joined up with the Maquis, and on his first mission, he was caught and sent to prison in New Zealand. But Tom's story didn't shy Harry away from sticking by his newfound friend as they leave the mess hall together when Janeway orders them back to the bridge. As Voyager enters the Badlands looking for the missing Maquis raider, Harry informs her that they are being scanned by a coherent tetrion beam, and just like Chakotay's raider, Voyager is swept away by an energy wave, which engulfs the ship and wreaks catastrophic damage to it and the crew. First Officer Cabot, Lieutenant Stoddy, and several others on the bridge and throughout the ship are killed. On the viewing screen, instead of the Badlands, Janeway now sees an enormous space platform, as Harry informs her that they are now 70,000 light-years away from their original position, in the Delta Quadrant, and on the other side of the galaxy. Act 3. 
In full triage mode, Janeway and her crew assess the damage to Voyager, which is substantial. The chief engineer is also dead. The warp core is close to breaching, and Janeway locks down the core to repair a fatal microfracture. But in doing so, she risks future warp capability altogether. Meanwhile, Tom and Harry head to sickbay, where they discover that the CMO is dead as well. They activate the emergency medical hologram, who, albeit curt and brusque, is capable of rendering treatment to the severely injured who are now pouring into sickbay. With the warp core breach averted, and as the core stabilizes, another energy beam scans the ship, causing crewmen to vanish, except for the holographic doctor, who is nothing short of being put out. Moments later, Janeway and her crew find themselves wandering around what appears to be a Midwestern farm, authentic down to the slightest details. While the crew scan the area with their tricorders, hoping to make sense of their surroundings, they encounter a very hospitable middle-aged woman offering them cookies and lemonade. Shortly after, an entire flock of hospitable Southerners, including an elderly man with a banjo, surround the crew, armed only with greetings and hospitality. Act 4. Believing the farm is a holographic simulation, Janeway has Tom and Harry search for a projector. When they discover a barn housing possible life signs, an attractive young woman lashes out at Tom, who, along with Harry, are immediately surrounded by the same farmers they met earlier, now armed with pitchforks. As Janeway rushes in to help, a giant door opens nearby, revealing Chakotay, Tuvok, Torres, and the rest of the Maquis crew in some sort of biostasis. Before they can react, Janeway and her crew are subdued and subjected to the same procedure that befell Chakotay and his people. When Janeway, Chakotay, and their crews awaken on their respective ships, they are informed that it's been three days since they were abducted and that Harry and Bolana are still missing. Janeway and Chakotay agree to table their issues for now to combine their efforts to find their missing people. When Chakotay and Tuvok beam to the bridge, Janeway reveals that Tuvok has been working undercover to infiltrate the Maquis. Chakotay's reception gets even colder when he spots Tom, which reignites the hard feelings still between them. Putting aside the bad blood and focusing on their missing people, Janeway, Tuvok, Chakotay, and Paris head back to the array where they find only one being left, the old man with the banjo, who cryptically tells him that they don't have what he needs, that he doesn't have enough time, and that he must honor a debt that needs to be repaid. Fed up with Janeway's questions, he wills them back to Voyager. Meanwhile, somewhere in an unknown medical facility, Harry and Bellana awaken from stasis and discover strange mutations spread all over their bodies. Torres lashes out in fear and tries to escape, but is recaptured and sedated. Back on Voyager, the crew believes that the steady energy pulses emanating from the array are directed at the fifth planet of a nearby system, an M-class planet, in fact, albeit incapable of producing rain. Janeway believes Harry and Bolana may be on that planet. Later in her ready room, Janeway is feeling the weight of losing Harry, but Tuvok, whose counsel she has missed, persuades her that she needs rest so that she can finish the mission of getting Harry and Bolana back and everyone home. Act 5. On their way to the desert-like M-class planet, Voyager encounters a cargo ship inside a debris field. Hailing the vessel, Janeway is greeted by Neelix, a spotted and brightly colored Talaxian scavenger who immediately strikes a bargain with her, his abilities as guide to the M-Class planet in exchange for water. Based on Janeway's report, Neelix believes her missing people may have been taken to the Okampin homeworld, which matches the desert-like conditions of the aforementioned fifth planet of the system. 
Neelix is beamed aboard Voyager and is met by Tuvok, who is more impressed with a Talaxian stench than his stature. Back in the medical holding room, Tors and Kim put their Starfleet and Maquis differences aside to work together and escape. However, they are soon greeted by an Okampin physician who informs them about the caretaker, a benevolent being who has provided everything the Okampa need to survive in this underground facility since their planet's surface is a desert wasteland. He also regretfully tells them that the caretaker sent them to this facility because their illness, the growths that are covering their bodies, may be incurable. Act 6 After overindulging in water and replicator cuisine, Neelix is escorted by Tuvok to join the away team. He suggests to Janeway that they should bring gifts of water for barter as well. Janeway, Paris, Chakotay, Neelix, and Tuvok all beam down to the planet to treat with Jabin, leader of a race called the Kazon. After traversing the planet's harsh, desert-like surface, the away team reaches the Kazon encampment and are taken into custody. A fast-talking Neelix tried to reason with Jabin, bartering Janeway's water gifts for information about the Okampa. But all Jabin knows of these people is what information he's tortured out of Kess, a young Okampan woman who Jabin enslaved after her recent escape from the underground facilities. Upholding her bargain, Janeway beams down two large containers of water, distracting the Kazon long enough for Neelix to grab Jabin hostage at Phaser Point in exchange for Kess's release. It appears that Kess is special to Neelix, and after a brief exchange of phaser fire, Janeway and her team, including Neelix and Kess, escape back to Voyager. Still trapped deep within the Okampan facility, Harry and Bellana are secretly approached by a young Okampan nurse who treated them earlier. Out of pity, she tells them about secret ancient tunnels that will lead them to the planet's surface. On Voyager, Kess also informs Janeway of these very same tunnels which she used to escape. After beaming into an inconspicuous area inside the underground facility, Kess introduces Janeway, Chakotay, Tuvox, Tom, and Neelix to other Okampans who believe that the caretaker may be doing more harm to them than good through their dependency of his benevolence. Act 7. An exhausted Harry and Bellana finally reach the secret underground escape staircase and try and make their way up to the surface. Meanwhile, Ensign Rollins on Voyager tells Janeway that the Array has begun firing a new type of energy beam at the planet, which is sealing with the conduits to the underground city. Tuvok believes that the caretaker is dying, based on the old man's recent actions and confessions that support Tuvok's theory. Janeway's priority now is to escape and return to the Array to see the caretaker before he dies, stranding Voyager in the Delta Quadrant. Kess leads Tom and Neelix to the escape staircase where they reunite with Harry and Bellana, who have succumbed to exhaustion before reaching the top. Kess leads this first group through the breaches in the energy barrier into the surface. Janeway, Chakotay, and Tuvok are closing in from behind when an energy bombardment nearly collapses the staircase, stranding Janeway and severely wounding Tuvok and breaking Chakotay's leg. Tom has Kess, Harry, and Bellana beamed back to Voyager as he and Neelix go back to save the rest of the team. And in a daring bit of rescuing, Tom saves Chakotay from certain death as the staircase finally collapses. With all safely aboard Voyager, Janeway sets course back to the Array to find the caretaker. Act 8. Approaching the Array, it appears that the Kazon got there first and now lay claim to its technology and secrets. Failing to negotiate a ceasefire with the Kazon, Janeway and Tuvok beam to the Array to find the Caretaker, while Voyager and Chakotay's Maquis Raider engage the Kazon forces. 
The caretaker is in his final moments and confesses to Janeway that he is of a race of explorers who tampered with the Okampans' planet, turning it into a wasteland. He felt responsible for them ever since and has been looking for a suitable replacement to continue to pay the debt that he owes the Okampan people for what he did. The energy beams his array sent out across the galaxy was his desperate attempt to find a compatible biomolecular pattern with whom he could procreate and provide the Okampa with another caretaker. Meanwhile, Voyager and the Maquis Raider are taking heavy fire and damage from a massive Kazon battleship, which has turned the tide in the Kazon's favor. However, Chakotay rams his Maquis Raider into the larger Kazon vessel, causing it to plummet into the array's surface, as Chakotay materializes in Voyager's transporter room, saved by a last-minute beam-out. With his secrets confessed and his energy spent, the caretaker dies in front of Janeway and Tuvok, leaving her with the ultimate decision— Use the array to return home, allowing the Kazon to seize it and use it against the Okampa, or destroy the array, save the Okampa, and strand Voyager forever in the Delta Quadrant. Tuvok reminds the captain of the ramifications against the Prime Directive, but Janeway makes the hard call and orders Voyager to destroy the array. In doing so, she has made enemies of the Kazon, and perhaps with some of the Maki crewmen now aboard Voyager, as Balana vented that she has no right to make this decision for everyone, to which Chakotay snapped back, she's the captain. In the aftermath, Tom is summoned to Janeway's ready room, where she promotes him to active duty as full lieutenant. As he leaves to take his post, Neelix and Kess also want to show their gratitude by offering their services as well. Neelix tells Janeway that she will need a guide through the Delta Quadrant, and they both want to do their part to repay the debt they owe Voyager. After merging the two crews into one, Janeway declares that, as the only Starfleet vessel in the Delta Quadrant, Voyager will operate as a Starfleet ship with a Starfleet crew, because this is the only way to work together and find their way back home. This also means that they will not abandon Starfleet's primary mission, to seek out new worlds and explore space and perhaps in doing so, also find strange and mysterious ways to shorten their now 75-year journey back home. The end. Norm, I gotta hand it to you. I mean, that is a lot of story to cover. I can only imagine that triumvirate of uh, Michael Piller and Rick Berman and Jerry Taylor just trying to create this, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, given that there is a lot to fill in that 90 minutes and uh, and well done. So let's take a look at some of our uh, our quick observations here. First of all, an opening crawl. Mm -hmm. I mean, th this is a classic of science fiction, and I believe a first in Star Trek at this point. A and it's, I, I got to hand it to him, you know, it is a really good way to get us into the middle of the action, which is, I think, the way you have to start a pilot episode. Did Deep Space Nine not have a crawl? I thought they had a crawl. Oh, maybe they did. Maybe they did have a crawl. Yeah. yeah so I, I take that back. Yeah. Regardless, I'm a fan of the crawl. But Don't even, overuse it. Right. <laughs> but Yeah. But just but, get us into the story. But just like Star Wars, though, after the opening crawl, there's a chase scene with a small ship and a big ship, just yep. like Chakotay's Raider and the Vatar. I thought that was kind of neat. Stick with the classics because mm -hmm. they work, you know. Also, at the beginning, I do really appreciate it when we get hints of Earth. You know, again, just like it give us some place to ground who the characters are, what the action is, what their relationships are. Granted, uh, our time on Earth is at a prison, uh, but <laughs> whatever, I'll take it. 
fine. Now, I'll be honest. Uh, when I saw the, I guess that would be the duty uniforms on Generations in mm-hmm. Star Trek Generations. I hated them when I first saw them. And now I oh, love yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. I love them now. Yeah. yeah. I think they're great. Yeah. Oh, and, and let, let's see. You know, uh, you mentioned it, but uh, Tom Paris looked slow your roll i i know that we're i know that we're starting to establish things about characters but lieutenant stadi right away mm-hmm. i'm glad that she kind of you know she's able to temper that a little bit i'm sad to see her go as quickly as we do in this episode but um you know come on tom i know here's the funny tropish thing so tom's like hitting on this gorgeous girl and the only mm-hmm. thing that like tears his attention away yes. is a starship it's so tropish piloty, right? It was it like is. Kirk like looking at the Enterprise for the first time in the motion picture. It had that same because it's a shuttle, uh, yeah, going it into this same kind vibe. of dry dock, right, and uh-huh. seeing the ship. So I thought that was cute. Yep, yep, nice moment. And uh, while we're at it, let's talk a little bit about the USS Voyager. I gotta say, you know, coming back to this show now, the design feels fresh. And it is a worthy update for that 80s, 90s era Trek that we've been in. You know, we uh, obviously we got to know the Enterprise D very well. We got to know the Defiant very well. And this just seemed like a cool, reasonable, but new-ish, new enough design Mm -hmm. to exist in that world. Love the bridge design. Uh, Just right away, I, I appreciate the geometry of that space. It, it's, uh, again, a natural and interesting progression when you compare TOS Bridge, TNG Bridge, Defiant Bridge, and they kind of take that circle shape but play with it, expand it out a bit. And on the Voyager Bridge, you have multiple levels, but it's a little more oblong, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, interesting space to deal with. And I also, I really like the idea of being on a much smaller ship that has its own unique technologies. But I got to say, uh, 15 decks and only 141 crew, minus a few, by the way, by the time we get to the Delta Quadrant. Right. You could spend a lot of time on that ship and not run into anybody. Think if you had a 15-story office building and fewer than 140 people in that entire building. You, you just, yeah, you could get very lonely a lot of storage for the bio neural gel packs yes yes and i look forward to many stories about bio bio neural gel packs <laughs> tough to say uh, <laughs> it is it is we gotta get used to it nice little bit of quarks that, that was fun and that's the kind of crossover that i like you know having voyager dr ds9 it's obvious but it doesn't overstay its welcome so, and i love the reference to morn you know the the rocks were they were you know procured from a very strange creature called a morn a morn yeah right. <laughs> very cool yeah yeah and, and uh, by the way you know just uh, good good stuff with that it was a good moment with quark good moment with kim and all of that stuff all, uh, totally pillar filler we talked about pillar filler before that michael pillar just come along and create a scene in two pages that fleshes out a character. Mm -hmm. And he does that extremely well with Janeway. Just in that moment that she's having that conversation with Mark about the dog, having puppies. Mm -hmm. And again, simple dialogue, a couple of pages at most. And it tells you so much. It humanizes these characters. And I do like 
So we've had like the the mascots, you know, in in the captains' ready rooms. You know, you had mm-hmm. uh, Livingston, you know, the the fish, mm-hmm. and you had the baseball in Captain yep. Cisco's. I really loved seeing the bonsai tree, you know, over Janeway's shoulder because it shows that there's a little bit again of kind of like this of a green thumb maybe in her in her history, you know, something yeah. organic on a very technologically based ship. Yeah, I like that touch. Yeah, you have to have that. Yeah. I loved it when Janeway said, you know, uh, stand at ease, Mr. Kim, are you going to sprain something? <laughs> right. He's, he's so eager. But he's I so like earnest. the writing. Yeah. I like the writing in that because it's very economical. She's she's stern, but she's also caring. Yeah. I like the kind of like the the way that the writers handled having not call her sir, obviously, mm-hmm. or ma'am. I like just captain. That was yeah. a nice bit of, of writing there. Tells you everything you need to know. Mm-hmm. I, I do. I love Tom Paris's confession to Harry Kim. Uh, I thought that was uh, a, a nice moment, a good way to handle that. And I don't know how much you want to get into it, but I, I will say that that confession and what we have learned about Tom Paris tells you everything about why this character cannot be Nick Locarno. Right. And I don't want to belabor the point here because it, it will just always come up that, mm-hmm. oh, it's the same actor from The First Duty, and that was Wesley's story. But it that character, the Nick Locarno character, cannot be this guy. Mm-hmm. This seems to be a guy who recognizes his own fault, does what is right later. Yes, he, he got caught and he got in trouble, but then you can set him up for that redemption arc. Right. So glad they handled the way they did. So I have a question for you, John, our resident yep. Epicurean. Yep. Bolian style tomato soup. Are the Bolian tomatoes blue? <laughs> they might, that's a good question. They they might be. I, I Now I want to see it. I hope somewhere <laughs> along the line we get to see Bolian tomato soup. Yeah. So, so as an Asian male, my... Mm-hmm. Watching Harry say this line, I don't need anyone to choose my friends for me, is such mm. a huge moment of independence, considering that, and and definitely in some circles where I grew up, how many Asian boys and girls, perhaps, were raised with curated friendships that oh. were only approved by their parents and grandparents. It was a very insular way of growing up. Wow. And I liked when Harry said, nope, this is my moment. I'm a Starfleet officer. I'm declaring my independence, and Tom is my friend. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, I really I, I like, like that, that moment. That, I, I love that that has a cultural significance mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Oh, uh, by the way, the, our, our late great first officer, <laughs> we, you know, we got to know for like a minute. But I, I do – look, this is something that should be pointed out at the academy that he clearly did not learn. When the captain says brace for impact and you hear somebody counting down like five, four, three, that is not the time you run toward the screen. Right. That is the time that you, you know, get your butt in a chair, you hang on to something, you know, it just yeah. – Try to remember that. Yeah. I mean, it was a nice little callback to the Excelsior in Star Trek Six when mm-hmm. Kronos's energy wave hit them. True. Yeah, and we have referenced it and make a little light of it. But yeah, it's it's kind of a telegraphed moment when basically all of the support characters or the main bridge crew <laughs> characters are all killed. Yeah. <laughs> right? The first yeah. officer's killed. The chief medical officer's killed. The chief engineer's killed. You know, the navigator's killed. All of these roles that will be later filled in by the actual cast. Okay, right. return with me to the su- late summer, early fall of 1994. Mm-hmm. 
as this show is being produced, as the cast is being introduced to the waiting public, they should have put those characters in all the publicity photos as the main cast. That would have been an amazing media That would stunt. have been great. I yeah. retroactively do that. However, uh, with the death of the CMO, we get the emergency medical hologram, and I'm never going to get ever like used to just the feeling I get when Robert Picardo materializes on screen and is just in a huff. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, without a lot to go on, he pretty well nails it, you know? Right. Gotta say, you know, by the time we get to the array, uh, it reminded me that there are never enough banjos in Star Trek. So True. glad glad that that number has been brought up to one, effectively. Well, mm-hmm. if we don't have enough banjos, we'll just make up for it in tricorders, because that scene on the farm, there were like 20 tricorders out there. They... <laughs> <laughs> they, it was like they borrowed every tricorder from Next Gen, from DS9, just to hear it. Just give everybody one of these. Give them something to do. It was know? strange. Like, everyone that got beamed off the ship and onto the farm, they must have all had tricorders on their person scanning the damage of the ship. And now they're just using it to figure out what's yeah. going on. And now they're there. Yeah. Mm. The other th- piece of equipment they had, uh, break out the compression phaser rifle. Because, oh, yeah. Yeah, that thing looks pretty awesome. And, and I love it. It's 24th century, but it harkens back ever so subtly to the TOS phaser rifle. Really mm-hmm. well done there. Yeah. It had those oblong canister shapes, just like yep, the old exactly. TOS phaser rifle. Yeah. Exactly. And and I got to say, you know, we, we see it early on in the show, but Janeway, even in this alien environment, just exuding a sense of command, mm-hmm. you know, really nicely done. I also love the scene. It was a quiet scene where Janeway was lamenting losing Harry and Tuvok was giving her sound counsel. I like seeing the captain with a Vulcan mentor again. Love it. That was a great moment for many reasons, which we might come back to. Uh, ooh, shout out to 47. We had 0.47 seconds shorter between energy pulses. Got to have that. I, I, you know, there was one thing. Uh, this is kind of a minor nitpick, and I'm sure that many listeners could correct me. Uh, but here we're in this part of the galaxy. The Ocompans, the Kazon, even Neelix, they have space travel. They have energy weapons. They, they have all of the – they don't have water. Mm-hmm. That look, it's a good premise. It's just kind of a weird mismatch because I mean, come on, the Kazon ship is this giant thing. They have to have resources of some sort, and I know they haven't figured out replicators yet. But you know, go to the place that has the water. I kind of like it in a way that I like Dune not having water on Arrakis mm. and its currency mm-hmm. base. So water more than probably. You know, jewels or money has become is like the currency du jour, you know, in this universe, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. And then you see Neelix, who I hated at first, like in all the marketing <laughs> material. I just like I don't sure. get this guy at all. I'm completely turned off. Uh, lesson learned. Don't judge a book by a cover. Don't mm. judge a design by first glances. I thought he was amazing from the very time I saw him on screen. He was scheming already. You could tell. And he was just yeah, he was just water wasting all over the place when he got water in his hands. I, it's interesting. I'm, I'm sort of reserving judgment on that because I know that Neelix is so unliked by many fans of Voyager or just Star Trek fans, you know. And, and I feel that is very unfair. I think Ethan Phillips is very good with what he's been given. My question is, over time, is what he is given of value? 
Mm-hmm. And I think certainly there are moments that are, and other times where it just feels like, okay, Star Trek has to cram in some comedy. Right. And I don't know if that's always going to work, but we shall see. We shall, I, I did like his intro. Um, and, uh, oh, you know what? And, and I, I will say this, you know, uh, very impressed that a starship has a bathtub. So, um, you know, good. And his replicated feast was impressive. I mean, there was melon. There were chops of some sort, some pasta. The water glass stacked up. Really fun. Uh, I don't love the replicated outfit. It, it feels like some leftover Ferengi fabric. <laughs> now, uh, what what I do love, there are locations very well used in this episode. The Ocampan City kept making me think that they were just running around at the L.A. Convention Center, sort of like in the way that Logan's run. They were using the right. uh, the Dallas Merchandise Mart. And then funny, I looked it up later after the fact. It was like, oh, they shot this at the L.A. Convention Center <laughs> where I just was, you know, a month or two ago. And especially impressive, though, because then you have to get your matte painting artist to blend all the pieces together. You have the convention center with natural light where you've shot live action. Then you got garden areas, cave entrances, and then you have to make all of that make sense in a total environment for those couple of matte paintings we saw. So, you know, right. uh, well done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They spend a lot of money on this pilot, and it shows in certain places, and especially mm-hmm. in Neelix's kind of like full upper torso prosthetic when he was in the shower. Because I don't know True. if we'll ever see that again, but doing something like that, you know, yeah. building it to Ethan's, you know, his his physicality yeah. and doing all the makeup and things, that takes money. So I thought that was really nice. It does. It does. Uh, I thought we got some good background on the Akampa and the Kazon, kind of giving me strong uh, Eloy and Morlock vibes, right. if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The uh, the underground center, and this is interesting because they had those matte elements and they have to put in some live elements. I like kind of like the the on-screen, uh, I guess it's like on-screen sunsets and kind of like yes. what the outdoors were like or what the surface would be like. It's very yeah. kind of, it's it's very manipulative to keep yeah. the masses subdued. I thought that was very kind of THX, 1138-ish, mm-hmm. you know, those kind of vibes. I thought that was really well done. But then contrast to that, I liked the scene where, you know, probably somewhere else in the facility where they're not or they can't be discovered, the incompetents who are like growing their own fruit and vegetables instead of eating kind of like the the paste that gets doled out to them every 4.7 days or something. (laughs) Right, right. Right. Uh, I thought that was nice Uh, because it shows that some want to do for themselves as opposed to being taken care of by the caretaker. Yeah. Yeah. Here's an interesting thing, though. Uh, after all the action is done and Tom makes it to the surface with Kess and Neelix, Harry, and Balana, Tom takes his comm badge off and gives it to Kess for transport. Is it yeah. because they don't have the Ocampin biorhythm in the Voyager's database yet? Oh, you know what? I, yeah, he did specifically give it to Kess, but, you know, Harry and Balana don't have their... Uh, they, don't they don't have, have their, their badges. Comp badges. Yeah. And I guess maybe they were just so worn out that Tom figures like, oh, I'm not going to give them a job like holding a comp badge. Yeah. I was thinking <laughs> that, you know, there's a human bio, bio pattern that the centers can find. Yeah. There's a Klingon bio pattern or at least half Klingon. Mm-hmm. But Neelix has his comp badge and Kess now has a comp badge. So now they true. can get put into the pattern buffer. True, true, true. Although they had been beamed up before. You know, That's they had true. been beamed up earlier from yeah. uh, uh, from with the Kazon. Yeah. It was just an interesting little detail that they put yeah. in there. Yeah. It was, yeah. By the way, I, I, this might be a bit nitpicky. It stood out to me, though, and I'm sure it stood out to other people. Tom saying to Chicote, isn't there some Indian trick where you can turn into a bird? 
I mean, I, it, mm-hmm. a, a little weird and, and also just wasn't Native American as a term more in use by this time. And I mean, production time, 1994, not necessarily in universe time. It, it stood out. Well, this is Nick Lacarno seeping through. It is. Okay. Right? Fair enough. Yeah. So more money being spent on this pilot. Nice battle scene with the Kazon and that big ship at the end. I thought that was Agreed. really good. And yep. the whole seeing an actual ramming speed maneuver through the POV of a character during yeah. beam out, I thought was really super cool. But here's one thing that I can understand, but it also struck me as being a little irregular. Chakotay always referred to Janeway as the captain and never Janeway. Uh, so yeah, yeah. is it just his his training as a starfleet officer that just snaps back into attention especially the way that he dressed down torres so quickly like she's the captain yeah at the end she's like who's she to decide this and then chakotay's like his starfleet training just kicks in Interesting. Yeah, are you wondering if his heart is really in it for the Maquis, or is it is he back on comfortable ground now, and all that stuff goes away much more easily? Whether you're lost in the woods or lost in the Delta Quadrant, it's never a good thing when the unexpected banjo music starts off. We'll get right back to Caretaker, but first a word from this week's sponsor, ExpressVPN. You know, Norman, uh, I very often like to take my uh, uh, iPad with me or a laptop with me and go work from someplace other than home, like a coffee shop, a diner, just anywhere to break up the routine. And let me tell you something. Using the internet without ExpressVPN, that, that's sort of like if I were to go to said coffee shop or diner mm-hmm. and just leave my iPad or computer on the table open while I like go to the men's room. Oh, no. Something like that. Yeah. I would never, ever do that. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes you'll be fine. People are cool. They're, gonna, they're, they're watching out for you. Nobody's going to slip in and just grab it for you. But very often, you're not going to be fine. That would just be a dumb, careless thing to do. I don't want to be that dumb, careless guy doing that. Um, so that's to say that I don't want I don't want to be in that situation where I come back and I look at the table and my expensive device is gone. Right. And that that is the analogy of why I use ExpressVPN when I'm on the internet. Yeah, that's like leaving your wallet on the table and then coming back, but your wallet's still there, but everything else has been taken from it. Right. You know. Right. You're leaving yourself exposed. You feel, would do that? You feel good yeah. about getting your wallet back, but you know that everything else that's important, like passwords and credit cards and money and information. I mean, it's like every time you connect to an unencrypted network, like cafes where you leave your wallet or your laptop or hotels or airports, same thing. Yeah. Any hacker can get on that same network and get access to your personal data. All of it, right? It not, yeah. And it doesn't take that much uh, technical knowledge to hack someone anymore. It just takes a cheap hardware like a cheap laptop or a cheap phone, and a smart 12-year-old could do it. That's kind of terrifying, right? Yeah, I'm way out of my league there. Yeah. And then you take that data, or that hacker takes that data, and they can make a 1000 bucks per person, at least, selling personal information on the dark, dark web. Hey, I, I am worth more than $1,000. And you know what? So is my privacy. So is my data. But listen, this, all of these are the reasons that we use ExpressVPN. It's to protect all that personal information 
that somebody else is looking for and somebody else could steal from you if you leave it all out there for somebody to take. So what ExpressVPN does is it takes all of your data and it, it creates an encrypted tunnel. It is a secure tunnel between your device and the Internet. So hackers, any any nosy, prying eyes, they can't steal or see your sensitive data. It is secure. Now, like you just said, it, it, you know, a smart 12-year-old could break into a normal computer and normally see what it is you're doing. Okay, well, in this case with ExpressVPN, it would take that hacker a supercomputer and about a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. Um, I don't have that kind of time. I don't think a hacker has that kind of time either. And most importantly, it is easy to use. You just open up the ExpressVPN app, one click on the button, boom, you are covered. You are protected. And I've got it on everything. Mm -hmm. Phones, computers, tablets, whatever. You can put it on all of your devices so everything is secure. So no matter where you leave your mobile device, your laptop, your phone, do yourself a favor. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash mission log. And you can get an extra three months free. Expressvpn.com slash mission log. All right, Norman and listeners. Um, I think, you know, the first thing that we should take on right away is just uh, we've got a new mm -hmm. captain. And it's exciting to see. It's exciting to see, first of all, because it feels from our perspective now, why did this take so long? But at the time, felt, as it should, very important, which is we have our first woman captain on Star Trek. And, you know, regular leading role here, it just seems like the time was right. Time was right before then, too. Truly. But at least we've got that here. And this is not to discount, you know, uh, Captain Garrett. And um, we, we had, uh, oh, gosh, on the Saratoga. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, Madge Sinclair. That's, yeah. So not to discount any of the, but, but here we have in a primary role on a weekly series who we will always look up to. And um, there's a lot to talk about her leadership style early on in this episode. You know, even there are little moments like just walking into that holographic simulation on the array, on the caretaker's array. And there's that moment where all these characters appear in the barn and they all have pitchforks. Yeah. When Janeway walks in, they all yeah, back off. I love that scene. Yeah. <laughs> she she exudes command. Mm -hmm. And even when confronting the caretaker, the, there's this great, you know, she is tough and in command, but then there is this incredible understanding and empathy for what he's going through. And it, it it's handled so well. And I, I loved re-watching scenes like that to get into her head a little bit and try to unpack and understand her command style. Mm -hmm. And then, because you mentioned it earlier, that scene when Tuvok comes into her ready room and she talks about Harry Kim's clarinet. Pillar filler at its finest. Her concern over not getting to know her crew and the fact that the newest member may be gone already is fantastic. And it is so heartfelt and it is so real. And I kept thinking it is reminiscent of any of those scenes in other series when the captain gets to let their guard down. But think back to the beginning. Think back to Pike Absolutely. and the voice. Mm -hmm. That very first scene in the cage 
And I, this with Tuvok, I, it, it, he is the only one here who can tell Janeway that she needs some sleep. And it's just like, you know, the captain will tell his bartender things that he won't tell his doctor. Exactly. Yeah. Is I, I, so much can be said about these great moments, and this is the kind of thing that I want to see often in Star Trek because, again, in a couple of pages of dialogue, you can just get it all out and you can inform so much about a character. Mm-hmm. And she makes it very clear early on that even though they are far from home, the Starfleet standards still exist. Yeah. This, I, I feel like, is definitely going to be a theme that we come back to very often. But it just says everything about her direction and her focus during all of this. So already I'm liking what we're getting out of uh, Janeway. The great thing about what what Kate's bringing to this performance is, and I said this to, I believe, uh, I was talking to my friend Charlene, who used to do To the Journey Mm -hmm. for uh, a podcast for Mm -hmm. another network. And what I said that uh, I said to her was a lot of these characters really have stepped onto the screen almost fully understood by their actors. And Kate definitely fully understands how to balance Janeway. Janeway is stern, but not overbearing. She is not a micromanager. She is very caring. She is understanding, but also she she understands her role, her role and the rules and I, yeah. I think that scene with Tuvok is really impressive because captains have to be – they have to be able to access their vulnerability. They have to or else they yeah. become yeah. what Picard lamented and that's being an island away from their crew. So that scene mm-hmm. with Boyce and, and Pike, that was huge to see in the 1960s to see male vulnerability that way even if it was brief. Yeah, But I don't want people out there to confuse – to confuse uh, Janeway's vulnerability with femininity. Those are completely different Mm -hmm. aspects of her character. She's vulnerable because she's human, not because she's a woman. Right. And I like that they brought that in a way where you're bouncing this vulnerability, this emotion off of a Vulcan. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right? Which we haven't seen in a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good dynamic to have. So let's talk about her big decision then. You know, it's the choice uh, of helping a dying alien and, uh, you know, protecting and understanding his needs and his concerns and protecting another species or getting her crew back home. And I feel like, look, at a certain point in the story here, we all know as the viewer exactly what the right decision is. But there's always going to be the lingering question. What if she had done it differently? Would others um, on her crew resent her? You know, and, and can you maintain command when you're 70 years from home? Um, because you would naturally ask, well, are the lives of strangers more important than the lives of your crew? Um But, you know, if we were to sort of armchair quarterback this thing, could they have done something differently? Could they have left and set a self-destruct for a later time? Or or is that too dangerous to potentially leave that in the hands of the Kazon? But I I do kind of wonder, though, like, look, once Voyager pulls away uh, and the, the, uh, the array is destroyed anyway, the Accomplice is still on their own. 
you know, they they still have to deal with this. I, I don't think the Kazon are just going away anytime soon. They're still a threat. So do you feel like do you feel like that end goal was really accomplished? Well, I mean, it was compressed for time. So I think that if we had like mm-hmm. maybe a, a second or a third continuation of this storyline, that's this ethical problem would have been at least discussed probably more with Chakotay and Tuvok and even maybe Tom Paris. But I think mm-hmm. what they wanted to do was really present the Kobayashi Maru scenario to Janeway in a very... Uh, in a very specific time in this episode, what is she going to do? Yeah. What is, what would her decision be? Because her decision is not only affecting her, but affects her crew and the people that now she has under her command. But the thing is, I always believe that it was Starfleet's mission to protect the defenseless and the helpless as well. Now it can be criticized that is this, uh, you know, a, an extrapolation of say the United States being the police force of the globe, you know, mm-hmm. at the expense of the military that serves to protect people that they don't know. But I think in this case, the argument can be made that it just it helps cement the certainty of her character in a situation where no one else can make that decision. That's the captain. The captain has to make that yeah. decision. Thick or thin, right or wrong, the captain has to make it and live with it. That's what I got from that. True. Scene. True. Yeah. 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 No, I I, I, I totally agree with that. I, I, I still like there's something about it that is a, a bit disturbing. We, we know that the Ocampa have five years of resources left and that's it. And that's five years that they are not going to figure out that they're on their own, that they're not going to figure out that they actually have to learn and do better. The, these lines that Kess has, um, they're, they're really, they tell you everything you need to know. They're, they're heartbreaking, and I feel bad for the Akampa because they're trapped. She says, you know, we were once the people who had full command of our mind's abilities. We lost those abilities because we stopped mm-hmm. using them. We gained a talent for dependence. Yes. They're sort of like the, 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 you know, almost like a bookend to... Um, uh, well, to the Telosians in in oh, some sure. respect, you know, their their world around them crumbled, and they just turned to well, we we just sort of have these illusions about who we are. The Akampa are in this abusive relationship with their mm-hmm. god. Uh, you know, they they are not allowed to become anything beyond who they are. And the caretaker, I this is. The caretaker is a really interesting character. Right. The, the, we actually built a fully realized character out of the the alien of the week. You know, it's fascinating that well we meet one, but we can say they because we know that at least there was one more there with him. Uh, that they were compelled enough to help the Akampa after wrecking their environment, but somehow couldn't help in a practical enough way to get them to sustain themselves. Like this just wasn't even understood as part of the plan. So the caretaker carries on for millennia with these godlike powers over them and, and combined with guilt, mm. which was a great trait to give to him. Was it godlike powers or mm. extremely advanced technology? Because what's that saying? Was it uh, Bradbury that said that, uh, you know, science that can't be explained would be indistinguishable from magic? Oh, and it, 
Yeah, yeah. And, and any any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I yeah, but, but here's I mean, from the point of view of the oh, Okampa, okay. from the point of view of the Okampa, the caretaker is, is magic. A God. Yeah, is it? Yeah, yeah, it's mm-hmm. magic. It is a godlike care and they are helpless without them. Their very survival depends on the right. array. Um, and because of that, they're in rough shape. I mean, their food comes from these replicators and they live in a convention center, which just sounds like a nightmare <laughs> as it is. They're stuck in uh, Comic-Con um, for all eternity. They are. They are. It is LA oh, Comic-Con. Gosh. It's not even San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah. But they, they've allowed themselves to wither away here. It is precisely the kind of society that, look, if Kirk had come in, if this was the pilot for Star Trek mm-hmm. with Kirk, he would have come in and started destroying computers and, you know, pulling the power plug out from the machines that keep them alive and talking to the inhabitants. Well, it's not, you know, talking them into going up on the surface and freedom or yeah, it's something. It's not unsimilar, dissimilar to Return of the Archons with the population that's, yeah. you know, held sway by Landru, right? A supercomputer right. that just right. basically provides everybody this this existence of, I guess, some type of normalcy that they know <laughs> that they don't know anything better of. I guess that... that that, that brings me yeah. to the, an interesting point about the caretaker. Is the caretaker literally kind of the opposite spectrum of the prime directive? Because the prime directive is about uh, not interfering at all costs. But the caretaker yeah. is literally interfering at all costs. He literally yeah. infantilized yeah. an entire species because he felt compelled to repay a debt. And he's overcompensating for that guilt and actually reducing the quality of life of an entire species that yeah. had gifts that were be probably beyond his knowledge. And yeah. Yeah. I, I still think they're doomed. Yeah. I, I hate to say it. I still think they're doomed. But I, I, um, I like that some of them, yeah. uh, the ones that the kind of like the little grouping of uh, independent thinkers that Kessney were growing their own food yeah. and using telepathy. Yeah. Right. So there's always going to be a small portion of resistance against, you know, these types of, of, of socialized models, you know, in an environment such as this. OK, that, that makes me feel a little bit better. Um, I want to throw out a, a, another quick thing here, not related to the caretaker or the Akampa, but about command structure, because it was just such a neat little button to put on the relationships that get established early on. So in the command structure on Voyager. Far better to owe someone your life and have them work <laughs> under you, under your command, than the other way around. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I thought that was just sort of the perfect way to do things. That um, it, it, it's it's asking us to swallow that with a big grain of salt. Suddenly, Chakotay is the first officer. Chakotay has, by all other perceptions in Starfleet, been essentially a criminal, uh, an outlaw uh, fighting against Federation and Cardassian interests as one of the Maquis. But now the situation has turned. He does have the training. Boom, now you're first Mm -hmm. officer. Um, But brilliant, I think, to give him... Tom Paris as a charge and give Paris that shift in power dynamic. I I love that turn of events. And there's obviously going to be hopefully an exploration of the tensions that haven't been resolved yet between Chakotay and Paris, not turning into a bird, notwithstanding, because that was strange. But 
there obviously is yeah. a history between them and bad blood. And it'll be interesting to see these two actors try and find some way to, to show that on screen. If water is so scarce in the Delta Quadrant, what weapon would offend the caissons even worse than phasers? A super soaker. Well, this has been quite the episode, John. <laughs> it has. Again, apologies to anybody because we are running long, but there's a lot. So, yeah. It was a double episode, billed as one in the credits. It was Caretaker 1 and 2, which means that it had a runtime of around 90 minutes. And we got our 90 minutes yes. worth, certainly in the discussion. But it is now time to do what we do with every single episode of Mission Log. And starting with this new series, we're going to take a look at first, does the episode hold up for us? And then we're going to dive into the morals and meanings of messages of caretakers. So, John, let's start with you. Well, I got to say, this episode does two things very well. It holds up quite well as a pilot episode of any series, because there's a lot you have to do in a pilot, and it also holds up very well as an episode of Star Trek. You know, we've asked ourselves over the years, and we've been asked by listeners, what are some prime episodes of Star Trek that you would show to somebody who's new to it? And Sometimes the pilot episode isn't always the best. Look at TNG and you go like, well, okay, their pilot, it was fine just to get to know the characters a little, but it's not a great story. Um, there are elements that pay off later, like having Q, but does it really show you everything you need to know about Next Gen? And it doesn't. And I feel like this, it, well, and certainly look at TOS. I mean, they, they had the curse of two pilots. And, you know, one of those didn't even get played until much later. You know, DS9 had the strength in their pilot of presenting this moody and cerebral tone that then would play out over the course of many, many seasons. Voyager had this interesting task ahead of it, which is returning to adventure and they needed to do so in a way that got the audience up to speed on the characters right away. Doesn't hurt that, of course, you're pulling from an audience that has already had years of TNG and DS9. So at least the world that you're in doesn't feel totally unfamiliar. But but they succeeded. They succeeded very well with, with all of these tasks in front of them. And I feel like you get the sense of everybody and their relationships quite handily even if they're incomplete you get a sense of what it is as far as the story goes it does something very well again which is telling a complete star trek style story with a mystery at its core while at the same time setting up a premise that will be the overarching theme of the series so it's just very hard to find fault with this you can tell that again that brain trust pillar berman and taylor spent a lot of time they had the luxury of months and months of figuring out who are these people what is the story that we're trying to tell how do we set up the series and they 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 really got it right you know the sense of mystery for me uh, always enhanced when you put a crew in a very fish out of water situation like an early 20th century farmhouse. So I, I love those kind of oddball choices like uh, that they took in a show like this. So does it hold up? Well, I mean, look, as a production, it can look a little dated at times. 
This is another series from the 90s where your streaming options may or may not be great and the video quality doesn't always look its best, but I can't find fault with the pacing. I think the effects are mostly top-notch. So, you know, with a few exceptions, some of those haven't aged well, but those are very, very few exceptions. So overall, it holds up very nicely just as a slice of production with the caveats, again, of some of those dated effects. But but that's really it. It's really hard to find fault with what they did here. Um, Norman, you going to pick a nit for me? Well, I'm going to probably touch a little bit on the quality of of the episode and streaming mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. how I watched it. I watched it streaming and then I, I watched it on DVD and I'll get to that in a second. I really like this episode a lot. I think that my personal tastes are, are more suited towards, say, the Starship Adventures. So that to me was just a nice return to something that I'm familiar mm-hmm. with. I love the the exploration aspect of this, but there's the twist to it. It's not exploring space because they want to. It's going to be exploring space because they need to get back home. That's the twist on this whole story and dynamic. But I also like that Janeway was very firm about saying, we're not going to abandon the Starfleet tradition of exploration. Yeah. That was very important to me, seeing that in this episode. We are going to get home and we are going to do our best to try and cut that time down, but we're not going to... We're not going to pass by opportunities that may teach us something about a whole area of space that no one has ever explored. They're the first explorers in Starfleet in, Starfleet in the Delta mm-hmm. Quadrant ever, yeah. regardless of the circumstance. And I love how it echoes something that Captain Kirk said in Return to Tomorrow, where, uh, turn, Return to Tomorrow when he said, risk is our business. Yes. Yeah. That's what this starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. Yeah. So they are going to risk certain times where they're going to extend their stay in the Delta Quadrant, I'm sure, because there's going to be something out there that just, that strikes their attention to go explore. And that's what I love. Yes, there's going to be tension. And I love the fact that there's going to be a mixed crew with not everyone being on board with the captain's decisions. That's going to be interesting to Mm -hmm. watch because we have an actor of Kate Mulgrew's quality and gravitas that's going to be able to handle this this storyline, this character of Catherine Janeway. Now, going back to the DVDs versus Paramount Plus mm. streaming. So there's an obvious, obvious hallmark of interlaced video that you see in Paramount Plus streaming. You can see it in the line work that is very apparent in either, say, straight line Elkar's designs yeah. or on ship designs. It just looks very fuzzy because literally the line in between the scan lines is missing for compression and data's sake. This is where the DVDs are far superior in quality from my screenshot ability to try and make sense of all this techno babble between interlaced, non-interlaced, progressive scan, etc. <laughs> from what I from what I was able to see. The color on the DVD is better. It's brighter. The image is not necessarily sharper, but not as muddled as interlaced. And knowing what people know about how we watch Mission Log, how you and I, John, watch Mission Log, we watch episodes multiple, multiple times to do our research. And for my taste, I would much rather see a far higher quality image over those multiple viewings than what's happening on Paramount streaming right now. I don't know if it's that case for every single episode, but for Caretaker, it was really apparent in very many scenes. Amen to that. All right, so we got the uh, the techno babble out of the way. Um, What about 
morals, meanings, messages? Well, this is a tough one because it was a very heavily plot-driven pilot, and we got to a lot of that plot in our discussion points. But there was an interesting thing that I found here about codependency, Mm. the dangers of codependency, especially with the caretaker or the Ocampa. Who was the codependent in this relationship, and how is this relationship possibly abusive or definitely abusive? Now, I did some homework on it. I'm no expert people. I'm just telling you what I found. According to mentalhealthamerica.org, codependency is defined as a learned behavior that can be passed down from one generation to another. It's an emotional and behavioral condition that affects an individual's ability to have a healthy, mutually satisfying relationship. It is also known as relationship addiction because people or the Ocampa or the caretaker, their codependency often forms or maintains relationships because they are one-sided or destructive and or abusive. There is a list of, of, of categories, you know, in codependency, but this was my issue with who is or who is not the abusive side of this relationship. Are the Ocompans abusing themselves because they can't get past the, the caretaker's gifts Mm. because they, the, the abuse to themselves is their reliance, their dependence on, someone else giving them the the keys to his own kingdom the the kind of like the the map to how they're supposed Mm -hmm. to live that's self-abuse not being able to get out of their own uh their own belief system that this is the only way to live and i loved how kess was able to find a way escape to the surface there were others handfuls of them trying to escape to the surface as well but then you have the caretaker and the caretaker However, he wants to frame what he's doing, has convinced himself or deluded himself or this made this system, this belief system that whatever he's doing is the right thing to do because he did a wrong thing. No matter how much he overcompensates for it, no matter how much he thinks that he's doing the right thing, it may not be the right thing. So I thought that was just an interesting uh, message of if you're doing the right thing, for the right reasons, is it the wrong thing? Yeah. Well, and it's just, it's very understandable. Like like the caretaker is having this very human reaction, which is, I did something wrong. I have now absorbed this responsibility that I didn't expect, that I didn't plan on. So now I have to do everything I can to make it right. Like that, that is an understandable motivation for just the alien of the week, who I, I think in glorious Star Trek tradition turns out to be this glowing pink blob and tragically ends as this little crystalline rock thing that uh, the, that Janeway so tenderly puts in her hands. I mean, all of that, like, that is the kind of thing that sounds like such utter nonsense. But when you put it into this science fiction context with actors who know what they're doing— there's an emotional impact to all of that, to the buildup of that story and the denouement. And I, I, I so appreciated that on an emotional level, trying to get what they were doing in this story. Um, and to your point there about uh, the caretaker's journey in this, uh, one of the things that I wrote down that is just so obvious but delivered with such conviction, and that is Janeway trying to talk to him, saying children have to grow up. You know, we th- this is how we get better. This is how we learn is you take the training wheels off and you let them go. I, I thought it was so lovely to see that moment and her delivery of that. 
And as for the rest of the episode, you know, I think there's a good number of, there's not necessarily always hit you on the head, but there are themes, there are Star Trek themes that are heavily on display in this episode that will come to bear in many other episodes, I'm sure. Um, First of all, working together, and it may sound very obvious and a little hokey, but it always bears repeating. So we see it over and over again, it, they're bringing Paris on board, mixing into the crew, then working with the Maquis, then with Neelix, and then with the Ocampans who are willing to help, and, and even Janeway and crew doing whatever they can to help the caretaker. It's all these interconnected relationships, all these moments that you have to go to someone and say, hey, we're in this together, we have to trust each other. So now we can do this other thing. And that happens like literally every few minutes in this episode. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to see that front and center. There's also the idea of the mystery here that is at the center of this episode. And in less talented hands, it would just be the enemy of the week. But here we have the mystery. We have the unknown, the alien that is treated with compassion and understanding. Even when our crew has been hurt, they go back and they treat this as something that needs to be understood uh, and reasoned with. Uh, look, he, the caretaker is powerful. He abducted the crew, but he also needed help, and their crew were there to help. And that's nice to see as part of this introduction into this new Star Trek. And then finally, there's that ethical decision. Do we stay and help? Even if it prevents us from getting home. Yes. Yes, we do, because doing the right thing can be the difficult thing sometimes. And that happens over and over again in Star Trek. And if it's happening again, as we start this new series, new for Mission Log, and welcome along to anybody who's new to Mission Log here, that is exactly the kind of thing that we will point out every single time it comes up. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Parallax. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Schabel. First day on the job and boom, hijacked by a piece of coral, these poor people are never going to live this down. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.